Hi everyone, welcome to our podcast, Breathe In, Write Out, a podcast for high school, college, and university students about making the most out of academic life. We touch on study skills, student life, career transition, overall well-being, personal development, and other topics that impact young adults. At the end of each podcast, we send our listeners off with a short guided meditation and writing prompt. We hope that through these discussions, meditations, and writing exercises, we can build an open, caring, compassionate community that supports personal growth. I'm Lisa Fow, the founder and CEO of Fow Academic Writing, where we focus on teaching young adults the communication skills necessary to reach their full potential on the page and in life. Get into a cozy spot, grab your pen and notebooks, and let's meet our first guest. This week's episode explores the experience of Indigenous students studying at Canadian universities and the issues they care about. 6% of the entire world population identifies as Indigenous and 5% of the Canadian population. In countries with a history of colonization, such as Canada, there's an underlying pain and tension between the Indigenous and settler communities. As a result of generational trauma and discrimination, Indigenous students face different obstacles to their education than settler or international students. This week's guest is Fernanda Yanchapachi, an Indigenous Mestizo PhD student in the Social Justice Program at the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education at the University of Toronto. She has over 15 years experience working in the education sector to promote egalitarian policies and strategies that contribute to the healing of generations of racism and oppression. She has worked with youth and professionals to promote Indigenous activism, policy development, and program implementation. Her current research focuses on Indigenous history in the context of Western intellectual property norms in her home country of Ecuador. Welcome to our podcast, Breathe In, Write Out, Fernanda. Hi, thank you for inviting me in. You're welcome. So, Fernanda, I know you're very passionate about your research and the cause of Indigenous justice. Can you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to embark on this area of study and work? Of course. So there was uh, this very, very specific research that I am um, working on or that I, it's part of my, you know, proposal for my studies. Um, it was inspired by a trip, I, I, will, I wouldn't say it's a trip, but well, an experience. In 2015, uh, I've been living in Canada now for like a long time, and in 2015, after I had my first child, I decided to move back to Ecuador with my family and spend some time there to, so my kid is able to grow up uh, for a couple of years close to my family and my communities um, and especially my parents and siblings and that she learns Spanish. So I, in one of the, like I had to find a job and one of the jobs <laughs> that I had, I was responsible um, in the Ministry of, in, specifically the Ministry of Higher Education. Um, I was involved in the, dra- in the process of drafting and creating a new set of regulations of the new intellectual property law that in Ecuador was just was approved in 2016. Um, and these a specific set of regulations were in connection or were related to the protection of indigenous knowledges. And as part of the process of like a, uh, approving the law in Ecuador, there was a big consultation and that took place in the country across all nations and like all territories in Ecuador to get an idea of what were people hoping or what were people um, thinking about uh, or like get feedback from people about the very specific articles of the law, um, but also their their input into what is it that the law should should include in order to pro- legally protect the intellectual property of indigenous peoples. So I was part of those public consultations. Um, and when I was working uh, or was part of, the, of this process is that I realized that there were uh, limitations of using like Western notions of 
property in order to understand the ways that indigenous peoples relate and uh, make sense of ownership. As I became more aware of this and I started to just, you know, listening to the conversations that between the government and the communities and how they were both thinking about the protection of intellectual property in like basically two different set of um, notions, I, I started to look for literature that would help me understand it a little bit more. And then I learned um, that there wasn't a lot of research that was published very, that will look very specifically in and it will examine the intersections of rights of property and indigenous knowledges in yeah. Latin America and in Ecuador in like very specific ways. Yeah. Um, more, more of the, there is a research available and there is uh, of course a lot of indigenous literature on this topic, but most of the literature is based um, in cases in the north and based in cases of New Zealand or the United States, Australia, countries that will not necessarily uh, were located in the global south and that's how it, be, I, it became like something that I that was interested in and I saw it as very something that is was very specific um, that I could do and that I could look into and that I can learn more so other people in my community don't have to do that like job but they can still they can still feel that there is someone there doing a very material contribution that will be later bring back to the country and that will be also you know like thought about alongside with other indigenous peoples in ecuador to try to make sense not just of the law but of how property systems doesn't or do benefit um, okay. us and the protection of our knowledge okay so did they have intellectual property laws before this sort of consultation process in 2016? Like what? Yeah, every, every country. Yeah, so all countries have intellect, like their own, uh, the intellectual property is regulated in every country. And in Ecuador, there was also, a, like a, a, there is also, and there was also a law, mm -hmm. um, but the law didn't include a very specific articles or notions or regulations that will help to protect indigenous knowledge or that talk specifically about the protection of indigenous knowledges, which are very different than if I have a recipe, let's say, you know, like I came up with like this very unique recipe to make a cake and I can go and tell um, to the office and say, hey, this is, this is my recipe, this is, uh, I, I own it and I can tell them the very specifics of how not necessarily that came to be, but that is mine. Um, but with intellectual property, with indigenous knowledges, uh, it's not that necessarily is more complicated. It's just more extent to one individual. Um, it's collective. It sometimes uh, goes from or moves or is passed on from generation to other generations. Mm -hmm. So it needs um, a type of regulation that works in different in different ways that individual-based uh, Western intellectual intellectual systems of property will understand ownership. Yeah. Um, so that was very unique about the law in and in the law that I was. Why why did they suddenly decide to make this change? Had something happened? I mean, when any new step um, that. I mean, governments or nations take uh, in order and that benefit indigenous peoples. It's it's the product and as a result of like years of years of indigenous peoples fighting for it. So in Ecuador, it's, it, it wasn't, it, it didn't exist. And there were like many communities and many people that had been um, following more closely proper law and the need of like seeing how many uh, appropriation um, was happening in, in, in uh, indigenous communities, despite uh, ethics protocols that universities may have uh, to do research in indigenous communities, um, or people will come to communities and find um, inspiration uh, but then later you will see that it's no it wasn't just inspiring a new product but it was actual actual knowledge that was 
like that was materialized, um, like clothes, right? Or medicine. It happens a lot in Ecuador uh, around medicine and the use of plants. So people will learn from indigenous communities uh, about the benefits and the uses of a specific plants, and then they will patent that knowledge as theirs. So it's it was it was a res a res like a, an attempt, I guess, from the from the specific government to try to solve a problem of misappropriation that people had been um, telling the government that it's been taking place in communities for years and years, and it was okay. it was just there was just a, a moment when the property law was going to be updated and 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 someone decided to include this. <laughs> So on, on the topic of um, appropriating like medicine or medicinal kind of procedures or whatnot. So if that was happening, like after something like that was patent and you, you may not know this, okay, it's just a question that I'm coming up with. Um, would, would that somehow then restrict that community from doing those practices? that suddenly like their practices have become commodified or are being sold somewhere else? Like kind of what was the impact on the communities that this was happening to? Um, I think what the first was like the, how just people will not, were not respecting. I think the biggest is it's, it's the, the, the irresponsibility and the trespassing and the not respecting indigenous knowledge sovereignty um like you how in academy in the academy works or anywhere really you don't steal ideas you don't uh, we don't steal ideas we don't just use some someone else's ideas and make it into our own or say that they are our own and i think the biggest impact is that there was people thinking that in because indigenous knowledges or knowledge certain knowledges are indigenous or belong to a community it's just a commodity that it belongs to everyone that they are public domain that anyone can just use it and make it of their own um and and i think the first the impact is like not respecting that sovereignty that people indigenous people have over their knowledges and um, the second was of course like when you is not that necessarily people will um not let indigenous communities if uh, let's say um, a medical use is patented it's patent um they will not let indigenous uh, indigenous peoples use that plan again but it just means that someone is benefiting from uh, making money from something that is not theirs so right. there is theft and and there are regulations international regulations that um prohibit people or like research institutions or uh, pharmaceuticals from doing that but they when they are not regulated at a local level or within a country then there is no one that will keep uh, to have those people accountable that will keep people or those um, institutions accountable and they are basically making money out of something that is that is not theirs and and people and they and the right owners of that knowledge will not um, will not benefit from that. Um, Nor that people will necessarily want to make money from you know the cert knowing how to use a specific plan, but it's just the fact of someone stealing um, yeah. and appropriating something that is not theirs. Well, that's interesting that you bring that up. I mean, probably a lot of people don't know this, and they might think, oh, you know, what a big big deal you know what are these people in Ecuador like so what someone took a plant turned it into a drug well people probably don't know this but aspirin which probably everybody has in their cupboard is owned by a major pharmaceutical company later aspirin you know we have ibuprofen we have Tylenol like this type of painkiller grew into other things that was actually appropriated from indigenous communities in North America who used to chew, I believe it's birch bark. I'm not sure the exact tree bark. And, and then um, Westerners realized, oh, this is municipal. Municipal, can't pronounce things. It was a medicine. And, you know, later that became a drug. Same thing with tobacco. 
tobacco is a traditional indigenous um, plant used in a lot of ceremonies. Later, a massive global industry, cigarettes, killing all kinds of people. So this has been going on for centuries. And it's really interesting that Ecuador is, I, I don't think, we don't have this in Canada. I, I'm not, I mean, maybe someone wants to correct me, but I don't think there's any indigenous knowledge, property protection that I'm aware of. So it's really interesting that they're doing this in Ecuador and um, are kind of bringing this to the attention of the world that this is going on. Um, but they have the fact that you have a law or that some regulations within a law that aim to protect indigenous knowledge also doesn't mean that it will do so. There is like the yeah. law, but then, then you have to implement it. And that's, and that's, yeah, that's a whole different story. Or like, do you have to have also a law that incorporates notions that are probably, um, that, 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 that should in order to rightly protect indigenous knowledges that must have notions that incorporate a different kind of understanding um, of property that is very different from um, now what like colonial systems understand property. Um, but yeah, that's, so it, that, it was a step. <laughs> yeah, is, is that kind of what you're trying to achieve with your research? Like I, I've read a little bit of your research because um, I have worked with you a little bit on some of your projects, but maybe you can tell us a little bit kind of what's your overarching question or, or goal and what do you hope comes out of your project? Um, well, so my experience, my very specific experience in Ecuador, it just um, has forced me or made me critical thing uh, to think about and imagine and starting to consider lines of analysis and discussions of indigenous uh, sovereignty that I necessarily haven't thought about that and and make me make me question what what my what could my contributions be to my could be in, to my communities in very very specific ways um, so my research is going to always hoping to examine um, whether like the specific colonial notion notion of intellectual property um, the suitability and uh, whether it is possible or not to protect indigenous legally protect indigenous knowledges if we keep using under or like under a western intellectual property system that may not necessarily understand ownership in the same way that we do um, I will I will look into the questions of what what are the impacts like if we think that that's or people think that that's the sort that in fact we can, we could do that then what are the impacts are there any impacts of using a colonial framework of protection um, and what are the impacts of these on the erosion of indigenous sovereignty are there any promises are there any ways that we can actually use that on and that will benefit it or if it's indeed unsuitable and we can work within that framework, um, what is an alternate, an, in the, what does an indigenous framework look like um, in the very specific case of Ecuador that will help us to not only protect our knowledges, but also support a broader project of reaffirming indigenous sovereignty. Interesting. So it sounds like it's partly very theoretical and then you're trying to apply those frameworks to a test case, which is Ecuador. Mm, yes. Can we expand this to other indigenous communities who may be facing similar issues with cultural appropriation and also different kind of conceptions of property, maybe more community-based as, as opposed to individual, which is very much a Western and capitalist notion of property. So what are some of the barriers that you've kind of uncovered that indigenous communities are facing relating to preserving their knowledge? So you mentioned 
you know, groups are just coming in and maybe they're replicating uh, clothing or they're replicating or taking these um, kind of healthcare, health type practices. Um, um, what I haven't. Barriers are they facing to having their idea of knowledge and and sovereignty protected? I haven't started my research. <laughs> um, I'm just I'm just in the part when I'm like you know thinking about it and like trying to figure out the the framework, the like methodology and and the methods that I'm gonna use and what is the theoretical framework that I'm um, that I'm basing not only my analysis but also my core assumptions of um, what property is or should be and, and what's the impact of this notion in indigenous um, communities. So um, I think that one of the probably things that I've been thinking a lot about uh, lately is the that idea that people have and just how how property or the notion of property has been built um, that is based on uh, um, in base based on a system or like a belief that something belongs to you and that it can be it cannot be taken away or whether it has been taken away from someone else it cannot be taken away from you so when settlers came to Canada or went to Ecuador they were given pieces of land as, as theirs when that didn't happen and legalized appropriation through like laws or um, regulations from the crown or from the state that make something theirs and I think the biggest that's the biggest probably um, barrier that we have, well, I don't think barrier is the word, but the biggest problem that we have faced is how people just in general, non-Indigenous people think that Indigenous knowledges uh, is, it's common, um, it's, it doesn't belong to anyone, that it's just, it just, it's just public that anyone can use it, anyone can access from like songs to fashion or to, you know, medical called um, uses of plant of like medicine of like plants anything people just think that is that it belongs to the public you know it sounds like there's a lot of interesting things to talk about and worth i'm sure we could have a, a much longer discussion on this whole property thing i'm sure even climate change activists they're interested in similar things like who owns the land? Is it is it common? Does it belong to this individual? Water, air, all this kind of stuff. So it sounds like you're touching on some really um, pertinent and yeah, pertinent questions that require a lot of thought and are really relevant to what's happening in the world today. But kind of moving away from that, I wanted to talk a little bit about yourself and your own personal experiences. So. You're originally from Ecuador. You identify as an indigenous woman. You moved to Canada. I think you were telling me, sounds like maybe in your 20s, you just decided to come here. Mm -hmm. So uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about, you know, what was that like? What was it like growing up in Ecuador? What was it like then coming to Canada as a young adult? Well, that's, that's very, <laughs> that's a lot. I'm, I'm not sure how I could summarize that. I come from a country that it has a big, um, a big population of indigenous peoples um, that many people, you know, even like in terms of like blood quantum, most of many of most, probably most part of the population may have um, indigenous roots. Um, I think that the biggest, my biggest experience has been, or, has been just growing up trying to make sense of uh, belonging um, in like and moving being able to move between two worlds like indigenous worlds and mestizo and the mestizo world um, having to like grow up very attached to very specific community and a very specific land but also having like growing up in at the same time in the city 
um, and going through an education system that did not necessarily have or included anything that was indigenous or that had um, indigenous epistemologies as at the center um, from from elementary to university but had also been very lucky to have that connections and to uh, keep those connections through just family and very specific very specific community and very specific land um, so I was able to to go back to that every every weekend and every holiday um, because in fact my you know, my grandparents always live there they, they never left okay. and then when i came to canada i actually came when i was 18 the first time um, as part of a exchange program that was sponsored by the government and i and that was the first time that i came to canada and I, when I came to Canada, someone told me I was 18, like very young, said, you know, we're gonna, in a moment when I was really struggling after finishing high school, didn't necessarily knew what I was doing. Mm -hmm. uh, my, my father had gone through, um, has, was a politician at that time. And also one of the very, like the few and very first indigenous uh, people that had, uh, rant for to be a congressman, which exposed our family to a lot of public racism. Wow. So I was, I came to Canada, like trying to just to, I don't know, I guess, find myself in, I didn't probably didn't even make that choice myself. My parents thought that it was a good idea sending an exchange program that it was sponsored by the government of Canada. And I was placed uh, for a few months and I leave uh, I live in Moose Factory, so which is a small community located in northern Ontario, and that was the first time I ever, in you know, 18 years of going through education that I've probably learned. I knew that there was like indigenous peoples in Canada as well, which is something that you don't learn. I mean, you know, sometimes people don't even learn here, let alone in other countries, and that's when I. I learned from uh, from the Cree nation and those who live in Moose Factory. I live with a family, and indigenous family in Moose Factory, and it was it was really one of the most like beautiful and eye-opening experiences that I've ever had in my life. I always had love and admiration for for the community, for my family. I still keep I call them my family, but I still keep in contact with them. And then when I came back to Canada in my 20s, it was, I knew what I was coming, I knew what I, I wasn't probably sure what I wanted to do with my life still. Um, but I, I knew I came with like a bigger understanding of um, what Canada is probably not learn everything about, you know, colonization process and the settlement um, that have taken place in Canada, in Canada and how everything works here. Um, but at least a little bit more of understanding of um, where I was going. And since I've been here, it's just being uh, always an eye-opening experiences uh, of learning from just different people and in different indigenous communities here about their understanding of land or what it means to live in someone else's land. Um, what are your, what are my responsibilities? What are my, um, yeah, how do I, how do I behave and how do I uh, live and move on, on a territory that it isn't mine? Okay. And on what are, on what is specific, yeah, on what it means for myself or now my children who, who had been born here. Okay. Um, so, wow, that's, that's a really interesting story. So there's a lot of things I don't, I don't know. And I just kind of want to clarify because I'm sure like people listening to this might not know either. Right. Because I don't know how many people listening have been to Ecuador or know about this kind of mixed indigenous. And it sounds like people in Ecuador maybe are mixed with like indigenous and Spanish or something uh, from the colonial process. But you mentioned like 
there's a few questions I have. You mentioned your grandparents and being connected to the land, but then being in school and sounds like it was kind of like in Spanish probably and more of a European type style. Can you tell us a little bit more about like visiting your grandparents and like what was that like? What did what did that mean to you and your identity? I think it's probably the same. I think that if there are any um I think that any like indigenous person probably from Canada that will hear it. Um, something will be familiar for them as well because I, from my what I have what people have shared what I have seen what I have learned here is very very similar stories uh, so my father on my father's side are indigenous on my mom's side mestizas which means that they did there is some indigenous um, you know indigenous roots in that size of the family but not necessarily connected with a very specific community yeah. unlike my my father's side which is uh, from a very specific community from a very specific territory um and where they my grandparents and my parents have maintained active um active uh like membership i've been living there have been working have been representing um the community for like forever from that they can remember as well so I my parents when they were my dad when he was 10 he was sent to the city to learn to the main like city Quito to learn to, uh, to attend a school because there there wasn't um, the school there wasn't a school at that time in Sichos and there were so, just um, there was like a few words the school had just started like my grandfather had just started to um, begin like to have a build or starting to have some kind of education in the community. So he sent my father to Quito. So my dad grew up to Quito and every vacation they will go back to Sichos where uh, my family still lives. And then so when they, I, he got married with my mom and, and we grew up in, like as children like my siblings and I we grew up between both things like going you know living in Quito and going to back to the community every weekend and every holiday um, so we were exposed to like as I said and education I'm not I'm not sure if it's I would call it European necessarily it's not that it was a necessarily European but a mestizo education um, which is non-indigenous a school yeah well but like the school system in general that is non-indigenous that is in Spanish um, that does not reflect uh, necessarily indigenous uh, views indigenous histories indigenous understandings of anything uh, except any content that will be written in the book and that's when even Ecuador has a really high indigenous population and but I'm lucky to maintain to just have uh, my grandparents my grandparents and my father and a community that we always go back to where people will always teach us things and we'll just spend no half of our time and um just just learning and just keeping connections that are very difficult to keep um in the city or when you move to the city it's not that it has been perfect there has been many times when when there i you know you have to navigate and you have to learn how to um how to belong either to either of uh, of both sides of your story and who you are, you know, and, and this is both histories of your, of both sides of the family. Um, but I've been just lucky that I, I have grandparents that have always um, stayed strong and um, have remained as active members of a community and that have taught us uh, just many things and who we are and we where we come from. Um, so I kept trying to interrupt you there, but you're very passionate about what you're saying. Um, because I, I just wanted to clarify. So what what does this word mestizo mean? Because at first I thought, oh, does that mm. mean like Métis? Would that be similar to Métis in Canada? Or like, is it Spanish? Like, what does it mean? Yeah, I think it's, I, I think it could be like probably technically, uh, uh, 
what METI will be. Um, the difference is that mestizo, like METI, my understanding is that it is, well, there is a mix of indigenous and non-indigenous um, ancestors and background. Um, there is an indigenous connection or an indigenous community very specific that you belong to. Um, in mestizo, not necessarily. Like mestizo, it's, it's uh, like a, a mix of indigenous and European ancestry at some point, and indigenous, non-indigenous people. Um, but there is not necessarily a connection, a very specific connection with the community. So in terms of like blood quantum and ancestry, yes, many people will have in Ecuador or any any Latin America or Central America or in Mexico, in right. both indigenous and non-indigenous um, ancestry, but that but not necessarily in a specific uh, a specific connection with an indigenous community, but okay. just a general, yeah. a but very yeah. open, unknown, uh, or like not necessarily very like a specific identified um, ancestry and co or community. Okay, yeah, because I, I have a friend from Guatemala, and then there's a similar term that he refers to himself. But w would it be then that like a lot of Latin American or Central American countries, like that's just how you would define the kind of culture. Um, like mestizo, yeah, probably most countries. Yeah, probably most countries. Um, a mix of both. Right. So it's kind of a yeah, because it's it hasn't. I think it's different, and I think what happened is. Yeah, I mean, there is certainly there is because it's just also part of it is because indigenous communities and indigenous peoples in Central and South and, and Mexico, I don't want to say North America, it's, uh, it's different, but it's like very high, like highly populated with indigenous okay. groups, our country, like self-identified indigenous uh, right. groups and nations and peoples. Um, so it's, it's inevitable that culturally, we live and grow up immersed in both worlds. Right. Um, now, the specific identification that people may have, it's very connect. It's connected to like a specific communities, mm -hmm. and I think that's what's different. Um, okay. or that's that what mestizo. It's very different from like mestizo wouldn't necessarily be an indigenous um, identity because it's not necessarily connected to that they know of or that they want to because they might know but not necessarily means that they want to identify um, in connection with a very specific community. So I want to talk a little bit about your experience as a student and how has your experience been different from other students do you think because of your indigenous, indigenous roots and growing up in Ecuador? Um, yeah, in the Canadian, like very specific in the, like going through university here, um, it's been, it's different from what I had probably been used to before, um, because I did had university and I did go to university before I went to Ecuador, but you know, it's just a different, is systems, institutions work differently, um, the access to resources, uh, it was it's also different, so it has been very, very privileged to be able to have access to resources and the non that other people will not have, uh, whether they are indigenous or not in, in Ecuador. Um, I think that what has made different is probably what I've been facing or what I've been seeing as different is not any different than probably other indigenous peoples have faced. Um, a lot of like the institutions, it's not institutions that center any indigenous, uh, indig no center, do not center indigenous histories or indigenous pedagogies and indigenous um, perspectives as core um, perspectives of uh, either their courses or the, um, the way how they understand the relationship with the student or the way how they support a student or the way they even understand or they can see or think uh, of what an institution should be and how, and the changes that it can, um, that it can create or the possibilities that they can create for change. Um, I've been I've been very lucky to be able to have 
indigenous professors um, and indigenous mentors within institutions um, that have made a big difference. Uh, if I hadn't, if I haven't had that, if they were not part of um, the institution, um, I think that would have probably not lasted a long time. I would probably not been able to continue my studies. Um, a big community, the way how we had been, I had been, the way how I've seen also felt my experience has been through um, the communities that uh, of students that I have encountered, that I've been part of, that I have created, uh, of like black and indigenous students who have not only stand up for a, alongside other black and indigenous students, but also against um, against very specific interventions that the university has been wanting to have or to do on our communities, on our ways of thinking and ways of support one another. Um, and that has certainly been very, um, I'm very grateful that I have had that. Um, as someone who does not, did not grow up speaking English, it's certainly at times it has been hard and it's probably been reflected in my writing. It has been taking me a while to be able to think uh, even theoretically in English. And, and, you know, when you speak a language, the way how you understand things are also from like a very specific logic and perspective. Um, and it's it's taking me it's taking me some time you know but i've been like continuing my studies here for like 10 years so it's taking me at some time to be able to adapt um to that as a non as a person who did not grow up speaking english um but i think that the only way that has this has been or like my success or I wouldn't even call it success, but my advancing and being able to continue my studies has only been possible because I have encountered indigenous um, professors, indigenous staff and indigenous students um, that had with me like walk along the way to try to make it to make a space within the academy that is not so hostile and that is just very generous uh, with one another and that is not based on competitions but actual like learning and meaning making that is that is meaningful and that is not and that is not about intervention of communities and and that has been and that has really been a gift so it sounds like a mix of um some struggles but a lot of positive experiences and building community and enacting change. So um, you mentioned some of your classmates and perhaps yourself, um, I don't know, kind of pushed against the university in some cases to improve the programming. Um, currently, what would you what what are some changes you think still need to be made to help the university system to better support the education and professional development of indigenous students like yourself um well i think that like 90 percent like probably 95 percent of the things that they have said that they are gonna do just like they haven't done universities have not like indigenous universities are still very hostile spaces of not just indigenous but like indigenous black um, students of of Latinx students or in, uh, students who come from communities that have not have access to um, necessarily education before. Um, they universities are still spaces that are very hostile towards. Uh, very specific students, and and there is a there is a, in the case of Canadian universities a list of I think things that um, they have promised or they have said that they are going to do following the calls for action um, of like the for reconciliation that have not put in place that have not been implemented. I think if they just did that, what they have already agreed um, with 
of the like promise before they could have you know it could be a lot of improvement so um, for, for listeners who might not know what some of these commitments or promises are can you maybe give them an example i think that there is well i think universities have their own um, they have established their own ways to implement the call of for actions, um, but they came from uh, the discussion about um, probably the hiding of in the more indigenous professors at the location of budget for indigenous research. Um, the increase of a number of indigenous students that attend universities their partnerships or more partnerships with communities um, to work alongside indigenous communities to do research instead of having indigenous communities to be to be subjects of research. Um, I think there are many things that have not happened mm. yet. Okay. So the, they're kind of making these efforts, but really just investing more in indigenous communities and like that indigenous perspectives in the university system. Um, you've had a lot of experience, now you're doing your PhD, and there are students maybe that are just starting their undergrad or in grade 12 of high school, or maybe they're thinking of doing a PhD. Um, what advice would you give your younger self if you, you started grad school so if you could go back and talk to your younger self on the day you started your phd what advice would you give her um do research about your program look at if the program has indigenous professors look at the areas of study and uh, request for uh, if they're indigenous professors request for um to have them as your advisors uh, at the beginning, not necessarily like research supervisors, but advisors within the program. Um, find which students, how indigenous students are organized, if there are any groups that have already been working at the university or organizing or that provide support. Um, what are the resources? Ask if you are interviewed, ask how many indigenous students they have in their programs. Um, as someone who has gone through university with and without the support, I've learned that it makes a big difference. Not that it will like, discourage you if you don't find this and don't go to university, but do look for it. Um, do look for that support mm -hmm. because it makes, it makes a big difference in, in just learning even how to navigate or this, the, the institution or in knowing that there are other people that are there, like you, mm. and that will always um, provide either resources or supporters or even just a talk that will help you to go through an institution that, you know, at time, or like go through an experience that at time it might feel traumatic. Um, support is certainly one of the biggest thing. Okay. In yeah, the institution right. and from outside, from like the community and your family. I don't think anyone could do it without that. Yeah, that's good advice. So find, see what supports exist in as a supervisor, other students, student groups, community programs, um, content in the university, all good advice. So we like to, um, I like to read books, and so I love it when my podcast guests tell me about some books or resources that they like to go to. So I was wondering, do you have a book or a resource or maybe more than one if someone is interested in learning more about the indigenous histories of Ecuador or kind of like the topics that you're, you're studying in your research? Um. Yeah, it, like to find very specific research about indigenous peoples in Ecuador, that's hard to like find in English, um, unless you're reading a white person who like study indigenous peoples in Ecuador. Um, but one book that I have read and that I like 
go back to because it just it, it has provided with perspectives or like at least a critical thinking of the history of um uh, yeah in in latin america it's the open veins of america latina um like i think written by eduardo galeano and and there is in there is an english translation of that book um i always enjoy it and i always like it mm. so could you repeat the title for us again and the author and the open veins of america latin of latin america okay. and by eduardo galeano okay great so we're going to put the link to that book um, on the website for anyone who's <laughs> So look for that. So um, thanks so much for being part of our podcast today, Fernanda. Thank you for the invitation. You're welcome. We had some bumps in the road, but we made it through. Um, so you can find out more about Fernanda by following on her on Twitter. She's very active there. Her Twitter handle is mf. Yan Chipachi. So I will also put that on the website. I'm not very good at pronouncing her last name. Um, and then you can go to that link and follow her. And I also want to remind everyone to stay tuned for the second part of our podcast, which is a meditation and reflective writing exercise to apply some of the lessons we learned during this interview. During this breathing meditation, you will focus on your breath. This will calm your mind and relax your body. There is no right or wrong way to meditate. Whatever you experience during this breathing meditation is right for you. Don't try to make anything happen, just observe. Begin by finding a comfortable position, but one in which you will not fall asleep. Sitting on the floor with your legs crossed is a good position to try. Close your eyes or focus on one spot in the room. Roll your shoulders slowly forward and then slowly back. Lean your head from side to side, lowering your left ear towards your left shoulder and then your right ear toward your right shoulder. Relax your muscles. Your body will continue to relax as you meditate. Observe your breathing. Notice how your breath flows in and out. Make no effort to change your breathing in any way. Simply notice how your body breathes. Your body knows how much air it needs. Sit quietly, seeing in your mind's eye your breath flowing gently in and out of your body. When your attention wanders, as it will, just focus back again on your breathing. Notice any stray thoughts, but don't dwell on them. Simply let the thoughts pass. See how your breath continues to flow, deeply, calmly. Notice the stages of a complete breath. From the in-breath, to the pause that follows, the exhale, and the pause before taking another breath. See the slight breaks between each breath. Feel the air entering through your nose. Picture the breath flowing through the cavities in your sinuses and then down to your lungs. As thoughts intrude, allow them to pass and return your attention to your breathing. See the air inside your body after you inhale, filling your body gently. Notice how the space inside your lungs becomes smaller after you exhale and the air leaves your body. Feel your chest and stomach gently rise and fall with each breath. Now as you inhale, count silently. One. As you exhale, count. One. Wait for the next breath and count again. One. Exhale. One. Inhale. One. Exhale. One. 
continue to count each inhalation exhalation as one. Notice how your body feels. See how calm and gentle your breathing is and how relaxed your body feels. Now it is time to gently reawaken your body and mind. Keeping your eyes closed, notice the sounds around you, feel the floor beneath you, feel the clothes against your body, wiggle your fingers and toes, shrug your shoulders, open your eyes and remain sitting for a few moments longer. Straighten out your legs and stretch your arms and legs gently. Sit for a few moments more, enjoying how relaxed you feel and experiencing your body reawaken and your mind returning to its usual level of alertness. Slowly return to standing position and continue with the rest of your day feeling re-energized. Thanks again everyone for staying tuned. I hope that the meditation helped you to clear your mind and get relaxed and thanks again to Fernanda for that lovely interview. So lately I have been into poetry because I've been taking our poetry writing class which is taught by Christy Wong and I happen to have this book it's probably very outdated it's called harper's anthology of 20th century native american poetry edited by duane natum so i was reading through this book looking through some of the poems and i thought i would share this poem with you it's kind of heavy um, but I think it's good and I think it's worth reflecting on its content and it will kind of go into the writing exercise I have. So this poem is called Raven Tells Stories by Robert H. Davis. Raven, gather us to that dark breast Call up another filthy legend. Keep us distracted from all this blackness, sheltered and cloaked by your wing. Answer us our terror of this place we pretend to belong. The groping spirits we're hopeless against, from where this bleakness keeps arising. We ask you only to lull us with lies, expecting the moon attached with day, because we're your parasites nested in feather. We hope you'll offer any false expectation. We'll never be left to this. That when your mouth opens to tell this, we will not notice your tongue black, your mouth full of shadow. So to me, this poem seems dark. Um, I could be wrong though, because you never know with poetry, you never know with art anyway. But it it seems dark to me and I'm wondering um, what it is about and is it about, see, I'm not, I don't know for sure. Is it referring to a story of the Raven or is it referring to what the poet Davis might be experiencing as an indigenous person in North America. I'm not sure. If anyone knows more about this poet or this poem, that would be wonderful. But I thought I would read this poem and bring it up because we're currently in a time when we're being invited and we have had this invitation for quite some time, but I think it's being taken up more by the media and contemporary society. Um, we're kind of being invited to reimagine the world and to start to listen more to some indigenous voices and experiences and 
to rethink how, especially in North America, um, we can build a society that acknowledges that history and that past. And so I think my writing reflection for this week is similar to a lot of the things we've been doing in poetry class with land acknowledgements. Just to think about what that means to you. So maybe you're non-Indigenous like me. Maybe you're um, what's often referred to as a settler. Maybe you're Indigenous. Maybe you're Métis. Maybe you're a different minority group um, in Canada. But I don't know, just, just to take a moment and write down and reflect on what do you know? What are your experiences with Indigenous or Aboriginal culture, groups, people in Canada? Maybe you have limited knowledge, probably. Maybe you haven't had any experience. I want you to reflect on that for a moment. So give yourself maybe five minutes. If you want to pause the podcast, go ahead and do that. And now that you've kind of reflected on what you do know, Thinking of these discussions on social media, in the media, maybe you're on campus and you're hearing things, I want you to think of some questions you have or things you don't know or knowledge you want to gain and to take a moment, maybe another five minutes and write those things down. There's definitely a lot of things I don't know and I thought I knew stuff and I don't know stuff and I'm constantly learning and tiptoeing around, but I, I want to learn. So I want you to write down some of those questions. You might want to pause the podcast. And then the final thing I want you to think about or write down is how can you take action to try to answer one of your questions. So Fernanda mentioned a book in the podcast that she thought was a good introduction. Maybe you want to read that book. Do you want to go to a talk? Do you want to watch a YouTube video? Um, what can you do to educate yourself about the current discussion and the issues around Indigenous people and communities in Canada and North America. Because I think that's probably the first step to change. Or maybe you feel that you've already done that and then what can you do to help to enact positive social change? Maybe um, join an organization, join a protest, uh, make a donation. So I want you to write down one of those actions and then take action. And I would love to know from people, what did you learn? What did you do? Um, feel free to send me a message or put a comment on the website or Anchor. And I just wanna thank everyone once again for listening to our podcast. Um, really like providing it and um, really hope that it has valuable information for folks. So if you want to find out more about me or FAO Academic Writing, you can check us out on our website at www.fao.ca or follow us on social media at FAO underscore academic writing. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. We really enjoy making it. If you'd like to learn more about myself or FAO Academic Writing, you can check us out on our website, 
www.fow.ca or follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook at FAO underscore academic writing. And for those who don't know, FAO is spelled P is in Peter, F is in Frank, AU, and it is German for peacock. So I look forward to hearing from you and helping you to reach your full potential on the page and in life.